0: I need you all to imagine this morning that you are on a jury in a courtroom. I know no one wants jury duty, but you've got it this morning, okay? And it's a very large jury, apparently, but it's here to decide a very difficult case. You're here to decide a very serious case. You'll hear a summary of the crime in just a moment. The defendant will speak on his own behalf, witnesses will be called, and then a verdict must be given. And it's a very high-profile case, and a lot rests on the verdict, so you're going to have to pay special attention to what's going on. The court is gathered, the jury is seated, the lawyer for the defendant rises to address the jury and describe the case, and in this case, the lawyer is John. And he looks at you, the members of the jury, and says, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, you have before you a man who has made some shocking claims. In fact, he has claimed to have authority over the Sabbath, the rest day of the Jews, and even placed himself on equal footing to God. I believe we can all agree that these claims are outrageous and deserve the most severe penalty unless they are true. It is my intent to demonstrate to you not only that the claims are true, but that actually Jesus is not the one on trial. You are. And the decision you make about what to do with Jesus will be the decision between life and death, blessing and judgment. You must make a decision about Jesus. And with that, he produces an account of the alleged crime and he begins to read. Because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. The healing was a wonderful witness of Jesus' compassionate power and it serves as a backdrop for a larger conflict that is developing in which John wants us to make a decision even as Jesus is persecuted or the word may be translated prosecuted by the religious leaders of the day. It all starts because Jesus told the man he healed to pick up his bed and go home. But the problem was that it was the Sabbath and God's law in the Old Testament says that no work is to be done on the Sabbath. But then, what constitutes work? That's a question that Jewish teachers had been debating about for quite some time, even hundreds of years, and eventually, they came up with 39 different categories of activities that they thought qualified as work. And apparently, the religious leaders thought that this man carrying his bed fit within one of those. They saw a former paraplegic walking and breaking their code, and they were more concerned about the code than the man walking. It makes you wonder how our own codes and beliefs and religious stuff may sometimes actually get in the way and be a hindrance of what God wants to do. We'll come back to this later, but for now, this is the case you've been called to decide. Now, before you go and say, well, this one's obvious. Jesus, he healed the guy. We're gonna gonna say we're on his side, And, and he healed this paraplegic. You need to actually understand what the charge is. The lawyer for the prosecution gets up and says, based on what you've just heard, we not only submit that Jesus was guilty of breaking the law by flaunting the Sabbath, a legitimate law laid down by God himself in his example in creating the world, But when confronted about it, rather than defending his actions by arguing that what the man was doing wasn't really work, Jesus was audacious enough to claim that he is the son of God and therefore, like God, has the prerogative to do what he wants on the Sabbath. And in so doing, he claims to be equal to God. Pause the trial for a moment, because we need to understand this charge. Genesis 2.2 says that God created the heavens and the earth in six days, and on the seventh day, he rested from his work of creation. Is that to be taken literally? Does God do nothing on Saturdays? If that's the case, who holds everything together while he rests? Who keeps the cosmos going? Does he refuse to answer prayer on the Sabbath? And what of divine providence? Does it stop on the Sabbath if he literally rests from work one day a week? The Jews knew, and the religious leaders themselves admitted, that God himself can't literally, totally rest one day a week, or everything would fall apart, and they would have no one to whom they could pray on the Sabbath. He is not literally bound by that law, though he set the example for us himself. And Jesus claims the prerogative that only God has. And so he claims equality with God. Note, God makes the law, don't work on the Sabbath. But then God He works on the Sabbath, and Jesus says as much in his defense in a moment. But Jesus doesn't claim, hey, listen, carrying your mat isn't really work. He claims, actually, I'm allowed to work on the Sabbath because I'm just doing what my father does. And in so claiming, he claims a right only God himself has, making himself equal to God. This is the question on which the trial turns. And after the prosecution makes its opening statement, Jesus himself takes the stand. He wants to make sure there's no lack of clarity concerning what he's saying. Look at verses 19 to 30. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord but only what he sees the Father doing. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live, for as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself." And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus begins his defense by claiming that his works are actually the works of God. They're one and the same. Imagine you've got a major plumbing problem at your house and so you call uh, a reputable plumber Murph and Son and you call him and say I need help and so the van pulls up and a young man steps out of the van and introduces himself as Austin and you're a little bit suspicious of this young man named Austin because you thought Murph was coming to fix your plumbing and so you say to this young man I've got a pretty big problem here I thought Murph was coming to fix it. He confidently points to the van and says, I'm the son in Murph and Son, and I always fix the problem the same way my dad would, the right way. Having me fix the problem is the same thing as having Murph fix it. Now, do you want your leak fixed or not? And in a culture where the father was expected to pass on a trade to his son, Jesus' first defense is, I only do what my father does. And the analogy of an apprentice son breaks down at some point because Jesus and the Father are one in a way that no human father and son could be. But Jesus' emphasis here is that if he's doing something, it's only because the Father is doing something. And it forms the background of what Jesus will later tell Philip in John fourteen nine. whoever has seen me has seen the Father. We often use the phrase, God works in mysterious ways to describe our own lack of understanding, but Jesus' argument in verse 20 shows that he could never have said this. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing, and greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. For Jesus, the Father was no mystery, and God revealed to him all that he was doing, and through Jesus, we have been given a revelation of God so that we, too, can know what God is doing. Look at John 15, 15, where Jesus said to his disciples, No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. Through Jesus, God made himself known and because the father is the creator the son has the power of life as verse 21 tells us Jesus had not yet raised anyone from the dead he would later raise Lazarus but that wasn't all that Jesus was talking about when he claimed to have life and power over the dead he was also referring to the last day when he will raise up all those who believe and he was talking about eternal life that John alerted us to in John 1.4. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. But he was also setting up what he will say in verses 22 to 30. Uh, let Let me see if I can sum this up for you. You can live in Jesus, or you can be judged by Jesus. You can live in Jesus, or be judged by him. We already see the tables of this trial beginning to turn. More hangs in the balance than in any other trial. You may think you have Jesus' life in your hands and you get to decide what to do with him, but he boldly claims that actually it's the other way around. He has your life in his hands. God is the creator, and as such, he has life in himself. He gave us life so that we could know him, love him, and do his will, but we all lived for ourselves and our own will instead. We failed to acknowledge God, we sin against him, we break his law, and as a result, we're separated from him. And because we're separated from him, who has life in himself, we are separated from life as well and so we live in a sort of decaying state but God loves us and so he sent his son Jesus to do his will and to reveal who he is and as such Jesus becomes a demarcation a line in history and a line across mankind to believe him is to have eternal life to reject him is to be judged and have death and this may sound very common and unexciting but think of it this way If you have not yet believed in Jesus, there's no talking about Jesus being a nice guy or a good teacher, neither should there be any fooling yourself into thinking that you can just live a nice life, be kind to people, and hope for the best when you die, and remain agnostic about Jesus. Jesus said very clearly, if you reject me, you reject life, and you will be resurrected to eternal judgment, that is to hell. There is no nice way to put this. To reject the Son of God who has life in himself is to reject life. Don't leave today thinking that as long as you're a good person, you'll be fine. That is not the line that God has drawn in the sand of history. Don't leave thinking that there are many good things in the world and many ways to peace or nirvana or God or whatever you want to call it. There are not. God sent his son Jesus and he is the dividing line of history. We hear politicians all the time talking about being on the right side of history as if just because they said it, it makes it so. That's a very subjective way to look at things, isn't it? Because we don't know what the next generation will call good or evil. And even though we think ourselves good, the next generation may come along and relabel it and we will find ourselves, though dead, on the wrong side of history. But what determines that history? except the whim of people. There's only one way to know, in fact, that you are on the right side of history, and that is by believing in the one that God has sent who has life in himself, by believing in Jesus. If you're already a believer and you're falling asleep on your job as jury because you think you've heard all this before, let me remind you of the power of what Jesus is saying for your life. Verse 24, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but it's passed from death to life. Not will pass, has passed. Not it'll happen later, but it has happened. What assurance this is for you, believer, believer. Not only for your future, though certainly for that, but what assurance it is for you right this very second. It is the word of the Apostle Paul that he heralds in Romans 8.1. For there is therefore now, now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We await the resurrection, but we've already left the courtroom acquitted. Isn't that good news? You await the day when it'll be done, it'll be complete, it'll be finished, but you've already walked out with the not guilty verdict over your life. This means liberty. It means freedom. It means freedom from the voice of the accuser, freedom from the bondage of sin. Believer, you have passed from death to life. You have by faith, but are you walking in the life that Jesus came to give you? Have you taken hold of that life? Are you living in the victory that Jesus bought to give you? Victory over fear, victory over shame, victory over the voice of doubt and guilt in your mind? Are you walking in faith and obedience to Jesus? Are you walking in life rather than death? Do you have the joy of the Lord? Do you have thanksgiving? Rather than grumbling and complaining. Do you have beauty for ashes? You have gone from death to life in Jesus. Why continue to live as if you're dead? Why continue to act as if you are decaying? Why not act what the Bible says is the truth? What Jesus came to do for you. That he has pronounced not guilty over your life. And that you have passed from death to life. We should rejoice in it. We ought to revel in it. God has brought us back to life. You can live in Jesus, and believer, you ought to, or you can be judged by him. He is the measure the Father has given. Thank God is a measure of his love and mercy to those who believe. Jesus' own testimony is that he is doing the works of the Father, that he gives life, and that he's the measure by which all will be judged. And then Jesus began to call witnesses to the stand, Let's listen carefully to the witnesses he brings. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John the Baptist, and he is born witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a little while in his light but the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. In verses 32 and 37, Jesus said that the Father bears witness on his behalf. The religious leaders may not have heard his testimony, but it was true nevertheless. John the Baptist was a second witness to Jesus, and we've talked a lot about the the testimony of John the Baptist in the Gospel of John. The works Jesus was doing were the third testimony. The miracles were signs, and teaching was evidence that he was truly from God. And finally, and most important for us, the Scriptures, were and are a testimony to Jesus. The religious leaders may have been unwilling to accept the other witnesses about Jesus, but they were experts in the scripture. Jesus says that the scriptures point to him. This passage doesn't tell us all the places or ways that that is true, but Jesus demonstrated throughout his ministry that he was the fulfillment of what God had said in the past. Take just a few passages, for example. Deuteronomy 18.15 predicted a new lawgiver for Israel when Moses said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Isaiah thirty to 6 spoke of the miracles the Messiah would do, which Jesus was doing. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy, for waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. Daniel 7.13 envisions one like a son of man who would rule the kingdom of God. I saw in the night visions and behold with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And it's not that Jesus expected them to be able to put all the pieces together and understand perfectly. But surely, since they were experts, they could have seen that what he was doing was a fulfillment of God's word. But they did not. Perhaps because they didn't want to. Now, here's how this is important for you and me. Because the witnesses we have to Jesus today are very similar, though perhaps we don't see them as directly as they were displayed in Jesus. We have the testimony of the Father through the Holy Spirit. We have the testimony of what God has done and what he's revealed to others in the witness of the church. We have God's ongoing supernatural acts in the world, but most importantly, we have the scriptures. They are our primary witness to Jesus, who he is and what he has done. And when we read God's word, when we hear it preached, we are not merely reading a book or hearing the words of men. Instead, we come to encounter the living God. We have the testimony of God revealed through Jesus. And when we hear His word, we encounter the living Christ. He is not dead, He is not dormant. I endeavor to preach in a manner that is not dead. I don't want to read the word of God with you and that you would find it boring and I labor to understand it and then teach it and preach it in a manner that hopefully brings it to life and when you come to hear the word of God, you should come with the intent of hearing the voice of God and not my voice. This is why we value expository preaching because I what I need to hear and what you need to hear are not my opinions that I thought up sometime earlier this week, but the truth from the scriptures where we encounter the living, breathing word of God, Jesus Christ, and when we come to the word of God, we meet the living Jesus who will not be conformed to our ideas and our opinions and our desires. Instead, we come to be conformed to the eternal word of God revealed through the testimony of scripture. So what's your posture, your attitude? when you come to the word of God? Do you come like one of the religious leaders of the Jews, skeptical because you have too much at stake to actually be conformed to what God is saying? Do you come as a skeptic, arms folded, uncertain that there's anything valuable here, you're just performing your religious duty? Do you come distracted, focused on what you want out of life and hoping maybe you'll get a little tidbit of self help from a sermon or from your devotions? Do you come bored, yawning? barely able to stay awake because you've heard it all before? Do you come nose in the air, certain that when you read the testimony of Scripture and the Spirit of God is present, that, listen, I've got greater insight than anybody else and I'm pretty skeptical that anybody could teach me anything? Or do you come humble, hands open, heart open, mind ready and expecting that when you read the testimony of Scripture and the Spirit of God is present, that you encounter the living Jesus. Let us not grow so religious that we forget the miracle it is to read the Word of God and know the voice of the Spirit May we never become so stuck in our routines and traditions that we are more focused on what we don't like than on what God is saying through his word. Because it's in the word we encounter the real Jesus. You should believe the testimony about Jesus by coming to the scripture ready to encounter him. I'm sure you've heard that the best defense is a good offense. In the last few verses of our passage, Jesus turns the tables on the religious leaders and Perhaps he turns the tables on us as well, revealing motives that we don't want exposed and indicating that this isn't really his trial. It's ours. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you'll receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you've set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote of me, like we read earlier in Deuteronomy 18. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Now we see where the real trouble was at in this trial. They were religious because religion Can be manipulated and used for self promotion. The religious leaders' unbelief was not for lack of evidence, it was deliberate. They did not want to believe because they didn't really love God. What they loved was their position, what they loved was the admiration of people, feeling loved by others, and they were unable, and they were able rather to mask their selfish ambition as love for God with their religion but it was fake even their supposed interest in the scriptures was false because if they really loved what God says they would have recognized that Jesus was what God was saying his most direct revelation was standing in front of them his son but they couldn't see it they didn't want to see it what about you you may say, I don't hate Jesus because you use his name and, and you put it on your on your on your car or you 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 talk about it to other people once in a while, but his name can be used in vain. It's possible to use his name in a dead, religious manner without actually loving God. People do it to get approval from others, whether it's their girlfriend or wife who wants them to come to church, or it's a desire to look spiritual, holy, or good, or maybe an attempt to be loved by other people, but Making a decision about Jesus isn't just lip service. It's not just taking his name on your lips. It's a genuine love for God by believing what has been revealed through Jesus. And so, like we said last week, we can't come to Jesus as if he will conform to what we want him to be. And one way we often come to him and expect him to conform to us is through religion, through our rituals, through our traditions. Because in our traditions, we think we've put God Jesus in a little box where he can be neatly kept so that nothing more is expected of us. And we fulfill the little ritual thing, the little traditional thing. We make sure it's never changed and it's never touched and it doesn't bother us as a result. But we keep him there so that we don't have to conform to Jesus. Our religion can become static because we're no longer encountering the living Jesus, but just going through the motions because we know it gains us praise from others or keeps us socially intact. We want affirmation of what we're doing, not revelation of who God is and what he wants. It can become just a social event for us in which we come and go through the motions because that's the expectation of our family or the group we're embedded in, but it is no longer about really knowing Christ. It can be dead and dry while we still look good on the outside, but Jesus invites in fact, calls and warns us to lay down our religion and encounter him in his word and by his spirit and in so doing, be conformed to him. Is your life still being conformed to Jesus? When you come to church, when you read his word, are you being conformed to the image of Christ? What do your heart and mind do? When we're closing a service and we're being asked for a response, Are you thinking about how it doesn't apply to you? What's for lunch? The distractions you've got going on later in the day? Or are you asking Jesus to change you? And saying, Jesus, I came not to hear this guy. I came to hear you, and if you're speaking, I wanna be changed. If you're speaking, I wanna be conformed to you. I wanna seek you. I don't wanna get up and leave and pretend like I came to another ritual, another religious service. I want to encounter the living Jesus. Has your religion hardened into a duty to attend, but no heart to respond. A duty to look the part, but no heart to know Jesus more. As the defense turns into the prosecution, Jesus rests his case. And now, people of the jury, you must judge Jesus. You don't get to be agnostic or claim that he's just a good teacher, good preacher, because as you've seen, he's claimed to be something more outrageous than that. So you must judge whether he is insane because he claims to be God, he's a liar who along with his followers seek to manipulate people for gain, or he's the Lord who died for your sin and was resurrected so that you can believe in him and have eternal life. But as it turns out, more hangs in the balance for you regarding this decision than you thought. We noted earlier that the best defense is a good offense and that Jesus turned the tables on his accusers, bringing charges against them. And so it's not really Jesus on trial today. It's you. The decision you make about him is the most important decision you will ever make. And he is working in you now through his word and by his spirit, to draw you to himself. Will you believe the testimony of Jesus, that he came to die for your sin, that God raised him from the dead on the third day, that he's seated at the right hand of God at the mercy seat, and that if you will approach him with confidence in faith, you will find the mercy you need and you'll have eternal life. Will you believe in Jesus today? This is the question on which your judgment hangs. Would you close your eyes for just a moment? If you're not a believer in Jesus, the case has been made. So the question just becomes, what will you do with him? And how you answer that question determines what will be done with you. If you choose to go on rejecting God, his revelation through his son, his love for you, His call to your heart and to your life, then the outcome will be death, eternal separation from God, eternal torment in hell, because you've chosen to die rather than to live. But that is not what God wants for you. And that's why when Jesus came and he was approached by these religious leaders, like earlier in John chapter 3, he said that God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. If you don't have that eternal life today in Jesus and you've heard the testimony of Christ, you've heard the gospel today and you wanna believe, you wanna give your life to him and know that you have eternal life in Jesus, I wanna invite you simply to approach him and to know that he is here, that he will save you if you'll trust him, if you'll give your life to him and say, Jesus, I believe your word and I believe in you. If that's you, you don't have a relationship with God through Jesus. You've never trusted him. You've never believed him. And you want to do that today because you believe the gospel having heard it. I'm going to ask you to do something simple. But would you just lift up your hand so that I can pray with you in just a moment? If that's you, you don't have that relationship with God through Jesus. You haven't decided yet what to do with Jesus. Today is a moment of decision for you. Will you reject him? And so reject life. Or will you receive him? come to him, confess your sin, believe in him, and receive eternal life. What will you do with Jesus today? Is there anybody here, you don't have that relationship, you've not responded to that call, and you want to this morning? I'm gonna wait for just a moment because I don't wanna pass by you. Don't leave thinking it's good enough to be a nice person. Jesus is the line God has drawn in the sand of history. What will you do with him? Is there anybody like that? I'm going to pray, and as I pray, my words don't save you. Jesus saves you, and I want to help you express faith in Him. And if you raised your hand this morning, I want to ask you to just make this prayer. That I'm about to pray yours. You pray along with me and believe Jesus. You're not believing me today. You're believing Him. Heavenly Father, I come to you. I've heard the word. I've heard the good news of Jesus, and today I believe it. I pray that you would forgive me that I've run from you and pushed you away, and. I've chosen death rather than life, but today I've heard the good news that you love me, that Jesus died for me, and that you raised him so that I could have eternal life. And today I come to receive your mercy. I know I don't deserve it, but I know you made the way through Jesus. And so I come and I ask you to save me in Jesus' name. I pray you'd forgive my sin, that you'd make me whole. And I ask Jesus that you heal my life because I'm broken without you. I receive today your word, and I believe it, and I pray that you'd help me to be conformed to Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. I'm going to ask right now if we have prayer partners who are present or a deacon's deaconesses, if you'd come, and if you'd please stand off to the side if you're a prayer partner. Stand over in the corners, if you would, of the platform, Um, because I want to make room for Christians today, because Christian, you're not off the hook You may have decided what to do with Jesus initially, but our own judgments of Jesus can become tainted by religion, by traditions, hardened into rules that keep us from Jesus rather than drawing us to him. The possibility always exists that my life, my church, my tradition, my denomination, even my Bible will become relics of religious curiosity instead of living instruments of God. Today, we've come to the living We've come to the living instruments of God, his word, his fellowship in the church, the spirit. And we must decide, how do we respond? Will you respond with a willing heart to Jesus? Will you draw near in a moment of need to be changed by his grace? Will you say, Jesus, I wanna be conformed to your image? Will you take a moment at an altar and make a place of prayer and say, Jesus, I wanna be more like you. I'm not urgent to leave because I did not come to fulfill a religious obligation. I came to meet with you. Or will we decide, hey, let's just keep doing the religious thing as usual. Will we make a moment to meet him? as we've encountered his word, or we would decide, hey, it's good enough the way it usually is, peace out. I wanna ask you, offer you an opportunity to make an altar. To make an altar here at the front, we've left it open, to make an altar by maybe kneeling where you are at in your seat, to make an altar by standing and raising your hands, but to somewhere make an altar and seek the Lord for a moment and say, I didn't come for religion, I came for Jesus and today I've heard his word and I want to respond and be conformed to him. If you found in yourself hardness in your routines, Difficulty connecting with Jesus. Come today, there's an altar for you. Jesus wants to meet you. Would you come? Would you come even now? Would you stand, if you will, and and lift your hands and begin to make a place and say, I'm not here for a religious celebration. I'm not here to look good in front of my friends. I'm not here for that. I'm here to meet with the Lord. I'm here to let Jesus minister to my life. I'm here to be touched by Him. I'm here to be renewed in Him. I'm here to be restored in Him because Jesus is present when the church gathers. And we ought to come to altars like this with the expectation that we're meeting Jesus if you raised your hand to receive the Lord and you want to pray with someone our prayer partners are available they would love to pray with you if you want to agree together over what we've heard from the word of God with a brother or sister they're here to pray but let's take a few moments and let's meet the Lord let's not sit in our religious comfort zones but gather and seek Jesus the real Jesus who is alive and working among us let's build an altar church